Listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I'm very excited to have this gentleman on my show today. He's not only an accomplished actor, he's also an accomplished director. And back when he was on on 30-something, I had just got out of college. And back then, I was in the Philadelphia area. And 30-something, if you don't remember, was about a bunch of yuppies. And we all wanted to be yuppies. And I still remember his character, Elliot Weston, because, one, he had a beard. And back then, it wasn't like now everyone has beards. No one on TV had beards. And I also remembered how he dressed. Because back then, like, dockers were big. And he always wore cool ties. and Just he looked cool. And I, always, I became a big fan of him back then. And uh, my guest is Timothy Buzzfield. How you doing, Timothy? How you doing, Steve? Good, good. So I know you have this new project that just came out, the, the Marvel's Wastelanders Black Widow podcast. Now tell the listeners a little about the show. Well, it's a, it's a series. Yeah, Marvel has done it again. Uh, they just seem to have their thumb on what people want right now. As you see with Spider-Man and everything else that they're doing, um, they've come up with, uh, the Ellie Pyle and Steven Wacker and, and Jill DeBoff. And they came up with this idea that 30 years in the future, uh, whatever Avengers are left, and I'm not going to say which ones are there. You can kind of get an idea. We're into Black Widow and, and, uh, Hawkeye's already been out in Star Lord was the first one we did. I played Star-Lord. And um, they have got uh, their hands full with uh, Earth uh, in the in the future. And um, they're trying to do one by one. They're resurfacing in an effort to try to get things right. And Susan Sarandon, the great Academy Award winner, Hall of Famer, Susan Sarandon, has graced us as uh, Black Widow. And she is now uh, in uh, New York. Uh, she's in a giant uh, superstructure, almost city, futuristic Blade Runner kind of uh, the conversation a little bit uh, were inspirations for me. There's Melissa Gilbert, star on the Walk of Fame, uh, a television icon. It's Steve Cooper, honey. Uh, my wife's walking in the background for those at home. I'm married to Melissa Gilbert, who uh, I hope I'm married to her because she's doing laundry in my house right now. Uh, anyway, so we're doing uh, Wastelanders, uh, Old Man Star-Lord, Old Man Hawkeye, Old Lady Black Widow. And um, and we're going to you know work our way to a finale. There's going to be six, ten-episode series all, in, all together, I think five or six. And we're on the, um, we're on the third now, how do you approach, how did, how did you get Susan Sarandon? Because, you know, you've been around for a long time. It used to be people who did movies didn't do TV. And then people who started doing TV. And to see, you know, as you said, a Hall of Famer <laughs> and an a, a, a award-winning and a just, you know, a legendary actress doing a podcast. How, how did that all come about? I have no idea how we got her. Uh, uh, you know, they come up with a list, and I think Marvel has a lot to do with it. The fact that we're Marvel. Uh, uh, draws good people. Uh, I don't know why she would want to be in something I'm in, uh, but that's the big question. Uh, uh, but we got her. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a great role. It's a great comic book role. Maybe she was a 
you know, she had the, the, the rack when she was growing up in her summers and pulled comics off the, off the comic book rack like we had when we were growing up that would spin around and, you know, you'd pick through the cartoon, the, the comics, and, and, you know, who knows which one she was attached to, if she was at all. Uh, I don't know. We never really talked about it. We got to work. She shows up. I don't think you waste her time with chit chat. Uh, she came in and we, we did our job and we let it rip. Now, what's the difference between, for you, for directing, because you've directed a lot of TV, what's the difference between directing TV and, and directing a podcast? Is there a different form for you or formal styling or how do you, how do you do it? Well, I think with a, you know, with, with visually, you know, when you're seeing, I'm directing a movie or a television show, uh, a play, I see it visually when I read it, you know, I'm looking at, at, you know, the blocking, uh, is a lot of it. And because of that, uh, I, I couldn't shake that here. I, I read it, even though it was for a uh, podcast and I saw the blocking, I saw where they are. I saw them in the room. I saw the energy that I would ask for in a, in a film or a TV show. And I asked for that um in the podcast and i my process is pretty much the same i i let the actors sort of show me their homework and do it once or twice and then i start to weigh in with notes um i'm very patient early on with the actors in the first or second take and i find it's better than going to them right away and telling them what you want before they get a chance to show you and and um it worked well with her and all the entire cast i mean we have michael imperioli in it we have melissa gilbert is in it um we have uh justin kirk and nate cordry um uh so many fantastic actors uh in it and um you know i think directing is pretty much all the same to me Uh, uh, uh the writing it's all about the writing and how do you get the actor and the performance to be really close to what the author intended now you're you're a guy from michigan and, yeah you're a guy from michigan how how did this whole acting career start for you because you've been doing it seems like you've been working forever i mean you've been constantly worked i mean you look at your imdb there's like no holes and it's both you know directing <laughs> i mean it's amazing you see some people you go ah, i wonder what happened what when did you fall in love for acting i believe was your dad da- da- a drama professor my dad my dad taught drama michigan state but he me and my mom split when i was two but we still had the posters for death of a salesman and everything we would shoot BBs at in the basement. Um, you know, we had the, that was what the leftover, whatever was left of dad, we shot BBs at my brother, Buck and I, my sister was a really fantastic, uh, uh, high school actor. I saw my brother and HMS Pinafore when, when I was six, I think because I was exposed to theater uh, that it became a natural sport to me, and my sister and brother did it. So uh, I sort of, in junior high, I wanted to be on the same stages they were on when I saw them and was able to perform on stages where I saw my older brother and older sister and adapted a, a something and wrote my first children's play in high school. And um, just sort of, it just, I always knew Steve, I went, I went and saw Burt Lancaster in a swashbuckler movie uh, at, the, at the campus theater in East Lansing, Michigan. And I came home and I was imitating Burt Lancaster. 
And I sat down at the table. I must have been six or seven. And I'd say, yeah, pass me the potatoes. <laughs> yeah. And they'd say, what's yes? What's the movie? What song? And I was imitating, already imitating Burt Lancaster. And I said, I'm going to be a movie star. And they, they looked at me and, and they sort of nodded and smiled. And they didn't tell me you can't do that or it's never going to happen. And then, uh, uh, you know, I did. I was an athlete in school, so I really wasn't in the plays or the, the too much. I, I did uh, a couple plays in high school. But mostly I was just an athlete, but I always knew I wanted to do it since I saw that Burt Lancaster movie and always knew it was in my future. And the question was the question you ask, how does a guy from Michigan make it into movies and TV? How do we make it? And then I realized that there's a path for that, uh, just like there is for athletes. High school, college at East Tennessee State University, minor league at Actors Theater of Louisville, the Long Wharf Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, all really good regional theaters, but regional theaters. Uh, and then Broadway, off-Broadway, movie, TV. I just followed that traditional route. Um, the opposite of my wife, who uh, started acting professionally at two uh, and was the granddaughter of the guy who created The Honeymooners. So... You know, we couldn't have approached it in a more opposite fashion. Uh, but mine was uh, the one that most people actually take. Now, when did you decide to give up minor league ball? And was that hard? Because you're, you're juggling two really cool careers. I mean, a minor league player and then you're doing some theater. But was it a hard decision where you just said, I have a better future in acting because the pros and minor league ball is a hard life. I know people have played in the minors. It's a lot of... Uh, it's nothing, it's nothing great, but what, well, when did you decide to give up? Well, I didn't, I actually, I never actually play, I had an offer to play in the minors, Saskatchewan, the Northern League offered me 500 a month, uh, but I played a lot of semi-pro ball, uh, and it was clear to me in, in college, I was taking batting practice off of Atlee Hamaker, who was with the Giants and started an all-star game four years later, three, three, maybe three years later, four years later, and I was like, if this is college pitching, where's the theater department? Uh, and so it was really easy for me. And I didn't want to lift weights and I didn't want to get big. I wasn't fast. I could spin the ball really well and I could hit. But I, I had a really good arm. I could throw the ball in the mid-80s and continued to play against college kids into my 40s in Sacramento on a nationally ranked team and you know, won a lot of games and struck out a lot of college kids while I was acting. And uh, it just, it, it, it I kind of, I remember seeing Kurt Russell what, in sporting news reading about Kurt Russell when he played minor league ball. And I thought maybe that's, when I was in high school, I thought maybe I'll become a pro baseball player and then that'll help me segue into acting. Uh, so I got, you know, I could have played, I was offered. I, I had that opportunity, but um, uh, it, 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 it was better for me to act. Now, when did you go to New York? And is that when you pretty much got serious about it? I mean, you know, you said you, there's regional theater and stuff like that. When did you make the move to New York? No, I was the, uh, the move was made for me. Um, I was at Actors Theater Louisville. I went out of East Tennessee State University. They have a theater conference called the Southeastern Theater Conference. 
and uh, college kids go and you do a one minute monologue and you have a song prepared and you do the monologue and if you get callbacks you go to those hotel rooms and you go in and you audition again and you, you sing for them and you try to get summer work or try to get uh, you know professional work and I was offered an apprenticeship at Actors Theatre of Louisville and I didn't know anything about it uh, but I took it um because i wanted to learn i wanted to be in the theater and i wanted to be with good people i didn't realize that it was the best regional country and my first year which was when i was a student we won the tony award for the best regional theater in the country and then i was invited back i was the first apprentice ever invited back to be in the resident company and in the spring of that second year uh, they have the Humana New Play Festival. And John Jory, who was the producing director, gave me my contract for the festival and said, you're, you're out of here. And I thought he was firing me. I didn't know what he meant. Later, uh, you know, I was able to confront him on what he meant, but uh, we had every critic uh, and, and agent. I mean, they were all there, especially the year after the Tony for the New Play Festival. And I had four great roles and was in plays with Chris Cooper and Kathy Bates. And uh, we had Robert Shankin down there and Martian Norm. We had Pulitzer Prize winners everywhere. And the theater was white hot and I had great roles. And I had said to myself, I wouldn't go to New York until I was brought. And I wouldn't go to LA until somebody brought me there. Like the, like pro sports. I very much had the minor league, path in my head and uh i would go into the office to get my mail from an, a, for a year and a half and i would say to diana the woman at the desk that warner brothers called today and she'd go no tim warner brothers didn't call they have paramount pictures called today and she'd say no tim paramount pictures i'd say oh shoot and i knew that there was no way i was building sets and running sound and doing all the stuff you do when you're an apprentice but then in the company, in that festival, I after the big VIP weekend, I went in and I said, if Paramount Pictures call, and she said, come here. And I was standing across from her, and she laid out uh, 13 messages from Paramount, NBC, uh, agents, managers. And Ethel Winant, whose son Scott Winant won an Emmy for directing 30-something, Flew me to New York to audition for Saturday Night Live. And I was, I got a movie and an agent in that first week. And I got a play at the Long Wharf. And I liked the role in the play. And I turned down the movie Tex with uh, Matt Dillon. And did a play at the Long Wharf. And then uh, uh, moved to New York from there. So I, I sort of went the traditional minor league route. And uh, then was flown to L.A., to do a play at the Mark Taper Forum with Circle Repertory Company, and then back to New York and Broadway and uh, Bright Beach Memoirs and uh, commercials and a TV series I booked out of out of um, New York, and so it was that route. I, I I don't think actors should go to New York or LA uh, until they're in, until they're brought there or until they're absolutely ready. Um, it's not a place to learn. Uh, it's a place to be seen. And too often young actors, and I knew I had to do the minor leagues because of baseball. 
I knew that, that you know, uh, I wasn't good enough to play pro baseball, major league baseball. Uh, and if I was, I was going to be have to spend several years getting big. I knew I would have had to get to 175, 180 pounds. And, uh, and you know, I, I to be able to hit, you know, 15, 20 home runs a year at major league ball, which I might have been able to do. But um, that effort, that path, that five years of training, um, I knew I had to do in the theater. And it happened for me in two uh actually uh so but it was i had like two years in the minors and then i was you know in tv and movies now you know it's funny when you look back when it came out because i'm I'm 58 so I, i was in college when revenge of the nerds came out and when you look back you never you didn't know it was you like you sit there like years later like not that much later when you're watching 30 something you're like holy crap he's from revenge of the nerds uh tell me about that movie because that movie just blew up like that's one of those movies i mean going into that you must have not thought oh man this is going to become a few more and people just went crazy about it i mean was that an easy role for you to get uh, you know what? I originally read. I first of all, I read the, the the script was sent to me, and I read it and I loved it. Uh, I knew it was it worked. The the revenge of the the story or the the classic number one story structure story and the history of going all the way back to the Greeks uh, has been revenge. Uh, and I, the script was great. It was tight. The characters were well drawn. And I originally read for the Tony Edwards role. And Susan Arnold went in and read for Susan Arnold. And I didn't get it. Uh, And I was just very much looked like myself. He was the straight guy. Uh, I didn't go overly nerdy at the audition. I didn't try to be too geeky. It wasn't the role of Gilbert that Anthony Edwards played. Then I got a call about a month later. And they said they have one more nerd to cast. And it's a, a... And... I, I opened the script and I said, well, you know, I can't find him. And they said, yeah, there's no dialogue. There's a line that says a, a violin playing Henry Kissinger type. So I, I went to a thrift store on Pico Boulevard in L.A. and had a son at home. Uh, and, and my wife was at home and I went to a thrift store and I found the, the glasses and then sort of did my hair like Gene Wilder and young Frankenstein and found a suit that was Henry Kissinger type. And then I found the walk and sort of stuck my chin out and the woman behind the counter thought I was crazy. And then I, I drove home and I walked in the house and um, my wife just died laughing. And she said, that's the funniest character yet. And then I went to the audition and Susan Arnold came out and said, uh, who are you? I don't know you. And I said, I have an audition. I'm, I have the four o'clock. And she goes, I don't know you. And I pulled my glasses down. I said, it's Tim Busfield. And she said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I went in and I had to They ask for a dance. So I do the dance I do in the movie where Poindexter discovers his midsection. And I read a couple of lines that were Lamar lines, the Larry B. Scott character. And I read them and I did the dance and Jeff Canoe in the room said, you got the part, kid. And uh, I went home with a, with a, with a role. And, I, you know, I knew the movie would work. I was afraid of the title. I was a serious theater actor and 
you know, I, I wanted to be, you know, I'd been in stripes and had been in a movie called mass appeal, but cut from that. But, you know, I was a serious actor. I wasn't sure I wanted to be in a movie called revenge of the nerds, but I liked the script and, uh, had a great time filming it. And the art, the prop guy's name was lip Schultz. And my character's name was originally Lipschultz. So he asked that they change that name and they changed it to Point Dexter. Now, after that movie comes out, when you, when you go out and audition, you know, I know sometimes people run into certain problems. Like the late Willie Garson had said, after Sex and the City, every, every script came to him. It was, you know, for a gay character. And he said he wanted to grow as an actor. For you, when you play a nerd, what kind of scripts were you getting right after that? Nobody, look, nobody's, thank God I didn't, I don't look like Poindexter. I would, I would have put a bullet in my head, Steve. Uh, <laughs> nobody knew me as being that guy. Nobody thought, nobody, the movie was hot, but uh, by the time the movie, uh, I was uh, on Family Ties when that movie broke. And I and I was offered a, a, a series regular role uh, on Family Ties, and I was offered Trapper John, M.D., and I wanted to learn film, uh, and it was a perfect opportunity. So I took that. I wasn't getting calls left and right. Um, you know, I was very much a character actor. And, and uh, I think Bobby and Tony, being the lead guys, they took off, even though I was very much and very uh, integral to the style of the movie. Um, I, I didn't know any better, I guess. And I'd done so much theater. I was constantly coming up with a lot of our physical stuff and a lot of our sight gags. And Jeff Canoe was inviting me to be at the set when I wasn't working and sit next to him and give him ideas. And he brought me into editing and he was an editor for ordinary people. He was the editor and he was at Fox and uh, I would go over there and hang out with him and he would say, boy, I wish we had the Mission Impossible theme. And I'd say, I got it at home. And I'd run home and get it. And then he would cut it into the movie. So that whole process was, uh, you know, there was one day where I was like, I think we should go home because we're going too fast. And this is the climax of the movie. And, and nobody, I, I would get fired for that kind of stuff today. And, and they said, okay, Tim thinks we should go home. Let's go. Let's go home. Uh, so, you know, that experience was really a confidence builder for me. And, and, uh, I can't get, I can't get after 30 something, uh, very difficult for me to get Poindexter again. Nobody would ever really give me a shock to play Poindexter because people know me more from Field of Dreams and 30 something and West Wing. Now, when, when typecasting is a real thing. Now, when you, when you were doing theater early and then when you started, doing getting your first tv and movie roles how did you adjust to it because you know theater you know you have shows every night you got to bring it every night tv movies you sit around a little bit there's how did you adjust in the beginning was it easy for you to make the transition or because of the styling because acting is is you're acting but was it hard for you to get used to sitting there and saying okay i have to i have to deliver a monologue if i screw up I can't say, wait, wait, wait. The audience has gone, Jesus Christ, he screwed up. What? How did you react, yeah. adjust the first few times? 
That's a really good question. You know, I had a, I had a, a, you know, a lot, some of it was planned and a lot of it was just sort of luck. Uh, uh, You know, going from theater, my first TV series was a sitcom or Stripes was my first movie one day on Stripes. It wasn't, it was a comedy. So theater and comedy are very close. You're stylistically, it's just a little easier for theater people to do comedy. Uh, uh, just the, and, and I hadn't, that was effortless for me. Uh, it was effortless for me to, my first series was Richard Mulligan show called Reggie. And I was a theater working a lot off Broadway and, uh, Broadway and doing a sitcom was effortless. But when I was offered family ties after for a while and Michael J. Fox was one of my best friends and it was really a fun uh, wanted to learn film I wanted to learn how to act on camera on that that style and uh, I because of nerds I, I knew I could go to dailies every day and I think the two years I spent on Trapper John MD going into the dailies room to see the rushes that's the stuff that we shot the day before. They put them on a projector, and you see yourself in those old, like those old-time 20th Century Fox, which is where we were, screening rooms, smoke-filled. People are in there smoking, and they're showing the dailies from the day before. And I got a chance to watch and remember what I was thinking when I did that take. Here's take five. Here's the one where I make this choice and watch and was able to look and say, no, don't do that. And, and really spent two years uh, playing the, you know, did the, was the lead on the show on Trapper John MD. I did more work in the last show uh, and really learned. Uh, uh, and then moved to Sacramento and started a professional theater for children, a 501c3, and said, I'm going back to movies. Uh, and was happy just back and the 30-something script game. And I said, oh, I have to do this if I can. So I was pulling hair. I was 29, and I was pulling hair in my face, trying to look over, doing the best I could to kill time while I let the hair grow. And because I'd spent that time doing Trapper John and learning about film, uh, uh, I was in a great 30-something, and plus the Nerds movie and the confidence I had from sort of being a team leader of, of sorts in that. I really was really confident and ready for 30-something to take on those that great writing and 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 sort of run with it and, and take it to another level. And that's exactly what happened. And every day, I, I was there was a certain invincible quality as an actor where not only did I know how to say every line, but I didn't care if I said it wrong. I didn't care if I got fired. I didn't care if anybody liked me. This was the truthful, honest way to say life. And here was a way to rhythmically better. And was a, all of that was sort of training from Louisville and off-Broadway and, and Broadway and sitcoms and movies. You know, when you talk about a career without a lot of holes in it, that process for me in the first, from 1979 to 30-something in 87, was a blur of learning every style 
off-Broadway, Broadway, Shakespeare, contemporary, naturalistic style, you know, comedia, you know, every style I was able, I did 35, 50 plays in that window. I did a, started a theater, uh, wrote plays. I mean, I was really uh, uh, trying to learn as much as I could, as fast as I could about every aspect of the trade. Now, when you were in 30-something, your character, you know, was a womanizer. I mean, you could say he was an infidel, you know, he was an infidel. You know, how did people react to you? Because I hear so many times that, like, and unfortunately in, in this country, we have people that actually believe that someone, that they may have believed you were Elliot. And did anyone ever just, like, come up to you and go, oh, man, why are you such a, why are you such a jerk? I mean, how does that act when, huh. when you play a role like that? Uh, there was a, uh, uh, I can't remember which there was a, my nephew and I went to a baseball game and we ended up in the, uh, upper deck and normally we were always right down on the field, but I didn't care. I was happy. And we were, and for some reason they put us up in the upper deck and the sections were massive up there, you know, where you get in at a a ballpark of sections, you know, and we were down sort of by the railing and one section said, go back to Nancy. And then, you know, one guy said that and then eight people in the section on my left said, don't go back to Nancy. And 15 people on my right said, and then 28 people said, no, and it kept, I was like, tastes great, less filling. Um, <laughs> You know, when the show, we would play at that time. The difference in television then and now is we only had four networks. And one was brand new, Fox. And they only had one or two nights of program. Um, so we we would, our audience was 20 million. And when your audience is 20 million, you can't really go anywhere uh, without people recognizing you. I remember I was in a Gelson's and uh, I ain't on 30. So now Elliot had an affair. He did. And he was, uh, they had one affair and he said it was terrible. Well, the first time was terrible. So the second, first time was great. Maybe the second time was terrible, but he had uh, a, an affair and they shot an episode called therapy, which is one of our, our strongest <coughs> episodes. And, Nancy is trying to initiate sex with Elliot and Elliot is out the door. They, we'd already shot <clears throat> the separation episode and then the network and the guy said, we want, they wants more Elliot and Nancy. So we're going to, we're going to shoot a, a therapy episode and quickly get it through post-production and then air it first. And, so I knew that we'd already shot the separation episode. I knew I was out the door and they wrote Susan Shilliday, a uh, great writer, wrote a scene where Nancy's trying to initiate sex and they're making out and Elliot rubs his hand up her leg and says pantyhose. And she goes, Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Pantyhose. She was already bad saying that. And then he rubs her, his hand up her leg and he says, don't you ever shave your legs anymore? And she reels and gets up and Elliot, one of my favorite line in the scene, goes, what? Like somehow 
it wasn't his fault. And a woman came up to me in Galson Supermarket in Los Angeles. I was reaching for the cream cheese. I came back with a cream cheese. I turned and she caught me flush with a slap. And it <laughs> rang my bell for a minute. You know, I was like, and she was big. She wasn't like, um, she wasn't a little Sarah Jessica Parker type. She was a, she was like the, the woman in Game of Thrones, the big blonde woman. She was big. And she caught me flush. And I was, I saw stars for a second. And I looked at her like, what are you, do- what are you doing? And she was like, I can't believe you said that to Nancy. You know, she apologized. And then she immediately jumped all over me. And I was like, I didn't write it. Um, I played Elliot. And I was like, um, my jaw was like for three days was like all tight. I kept bugging me. But yeah, people would do that. They t- take it very seriously. Now, now, when you were 30-something, you started getting into directing for TV, right? That was one of your first uh, directing jobs as a yes. TV. How did you go about that? Was that in your contract, or did you say, I want to do this? How do you go from being an actor and then branching into that? I was really lucky. Peter Horton, who was a series cast member of ours, uh, and a buddy, uh, you know, we all became like a band together. We all became very, very, very close. And Peter came in as a director. Uh, Ed and Marshall had liked Peter to direct on the show from the beginning. And they said, you're going to act, but you're also going to direct. And so in the first, maybe he did the separation episode, which might have been his first episode, and that was in the first 13, I believe. And um, then Kenny Olin said, if Horton's directing, I want to direct. And they said, okay. And I said, well, if Olin's directing, I get to direct. And they said, okay. And then it turned out that the guys preferred sort of no bad habits to basic TV directors that shot all TV the same way. They shot a master and an over and over and a close-up, close-up. And they were able to groom the filmmakers. So, you know, by the end of the run, uh, you know, we directed a season worth of shows between Kenny and Peter and I. And then Melanie jumped in and Mel directed one. And the only ones that didn't direct were Polly and Patricia Wedig. And Polly went on to direct uh, movies and, and TV. So, you know, the guys taught us. We'd go to dailies every day. Steve, we'd go every day. They would serve chicken and salad and rice. And they would show the dailies from the day before. And we would go up. We would have an hour for lunch, and we'd go up there and watch the dailies and and learn. Um, I don't know how people learn these days. You know, we, we could tell when you see, when, when you look at an episode of television now, you can't remember which take they used. But if you go to the dailies, you can remember exactly what you did the day before, and you can tell which take you like and which you don't like. And... They were always a part of on Field of Dreams. They rented that we they would show them. There'd be Pete Revenge of the Nerds. We'd have pizza and food, and we'd go to dailies every single day. Uh, and you'd watch what you did the day before and learn from it. And on Thirty Something, we did that, and we were encouraged and taught by those guys to become filmmakers. Now, was it hard? And for, that's how that started. Was it hard for you on Thirty Something? Because there's there you're all three of you are actors. And you're all directing, and you're directing each other, and you probably have different styles. Is it hard for you to direct yourself when you're in a scene with 
other actors who are also directors. Does that make it harder for you? I actually prefer it because I can set the tempo. By the time you, you shoot a scene, you've read that scene so many times. It's not like you show up on the set and they give you a scene and you have to figure it out on the spot. You know exactly how you're going to block and stage that scene. And you've read it so many times. So uh, for me, I prefer to act in scenes where I'm directing myself. I like to do both. Um, and on that show, we were very helpful. Ken Olin directed sort of the penalt the, the the you know the episode where Gary dies and Nancy beats cancer, and he gets the call at the hospital where he's visiting Nancy and Elliot, and Ken said, "Timmy, watch the monitor. You you direct me in this scene." He was directing the episode, and he wanted me to watch to give him any notes, watch his performance as he hears the news that Peter Horton, uh, his character died. You know, we were very much that, that team. Uh, so with that show, it wasn't a problem at all. Um, so, and since then, I, my goodness, I've directed myself on just about every show that I've produced for sure. And many others where they've said, will you be in the episode you're directing? And, um, you know, it doesn't, alter my performance at all i i prefer it the only time it was difficult was on a show called the night shift and i was a guy who was attached to a gurney with oxygen and all that other stuff and i'd forgotten that i i once they get you in that stuff they don't let you out uh so uh, actors had to come to me i would say cut and i would you know they'd wheel me through i'd say my lines and then they'd wheel me up to the monitors and I'd lay in the bed with the oxygen and everything coming out, watching the scene. And then I'd say, cut. And the actors, instead of going to the actors and saying, great, let's huddle together, I'd say, you guys have to huddle together around me at the at the gurney. And the actors would come around, and I'd be looking up at them, and I'd say, you need to go faster. You need to go slower. You need to come in sooner. Uh, and you need to act better. Uh, and then I'd say, hey, let's go again. And they, they you know, that. So that was the only time it was difficult. So after thirty something, what do you decide you're going to do? Act or direct? I mean, how does your agent pitch you? Do they say, "Okay, you you hear a part you want"? Do you say, "Okay, I'm going to put act directing on the back burner right now," or you see an episode you want to direct? You go, "I'm going to put acting." How did you manage your career at that point and to this day still? I did not. Per- pursue any directing other than theater i went to my theater and i started I, I i was doing features field of dreams had come out i did sneakers quiz show i did a you know a dozen tv movies i really focused on the acting and i did not even lobby or have an agent that didn't get submitted for any directing i didn't get any calls uh to direct any television uh it was very difficult to get and then in I'd done uh, a few good men on Broadway. I did the Tom Cruise role in that on Broadway. And uh, and Aaron Sorkin had done a play at my theater. Uh, and I directed it. And, uh, and then Aaron did Sports Night. And Aaron said, would you direct a Sports Night? And I said, sure. And then I directed more. And um, that, the I did the 330-somethings. And then it was eight years later that I directed or film again, and it was on sports night. And then um, that was a hot show and I took off and started producing and directing and 
really, you know, left the West Wing to become a producer because I wanted to become a better director. And I'd already done the acting and it was a good supporting role with Allison and I loved it. But I'd been a lead in movies and lead in TV and uh, I thought it was a better time for me to go learn how to be a filmmaker. So I became a director producer on a show called Ed and Without a Trace, both TV shows I acted on. Um, and then, you know, worked on a show called, uh, uh, a bunch of shows, uh, uh, you know, without a trace and, um, studio 60, I just kept rolling lipstick jungle. Uh, I've done about seven series as a producer director and where you're really running all of the production arm of the show. Those are all, um, choices that I made, uh, at that time. And, and, uh, Went back to the acting a couple of years ago. I said, it's time to act. and went and did a series regular job for ABC and on a show called For Life. And now I'm back directing again for a while. And, you know, I sort of like being able to say, I want to do this now and I want to do that now. And it's always been a better career for me for making my own decisions. You know, you said you said not as much the agents. No, you said the producer you wanted to produce and direct because that would make you a better director. How does being a producer make you a better director? I mean, is it something that, you know, what makes, what do you gain from that when you do that? That's a really good question. Well, first of all, you know, like anytime, you know, you learn a lot from man, when you're in a management position, you learn a lot about what you need, not necessarily what you want and piecing together a film is a lot of math and, and a lot of pieces. And when you're producing, uh, you really get a sense of what you need, not what you want. Uh, so when things collapse or go the wrong way, or if you lose a location or you lose the light, um, how can you offensively commit and make that day without rolling over to another day, which we never, ever want to do. Um, how do you make adjustments uh, if you're attached to what you saw? And I found when I direct, when I produced, I was much, uh, I learned a lot about what I needed, not what I wanted. I, I was able to be behind the director or, or there to clean up their work and say, you know, we need a shot when you're editing and you're locking a TV show as a producer and you have to be 41 minutes and 30 seconds and you're at 42 minutes and 20 seconds, you're no longer looking at the episode of television as something that you want to make an impact or you're romantically attached to. You're looking at it and say, I need to get rid of 28 seconds. If I had a look from her to him, then I could cut the middle of that next exchange out if i had uh in this scene they shot if they just would have shot uh, uh, a shot of the tires rolling then i could have cut uh this chunk out of the middle of the scene and and bought myself 11 seconds those are things that you don't think about when you're just directing those are things you think about when you, it's your job to deliver the cut to the network right on time uh, so they can get the maximum amount of advertising dollars. Um, and 
those are the things in casting. You know, when you're in casting for episodes you don't direct, you really learn how to run a casting session. Um, you, when you're producing, you really learn um, how to deal with designers and prop people. Because as the producing director, executive producer, you you know who's uh, has a pregnant wife, who's been sick, uh, uh, who has a death in the family. Um, the crew become people that you 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 your your bandmates, your team. And as a director, you tend to take them for granted. Uh, but as an executive producer, you're responsible for everybody's life. Um, they're, they're, you know, how they're treated. And and they become family to you. And then I be, you become a much better director. Plus, when you're producing, you get really much better directors than you, if you're fortunate enough. And I was fortunate enough to learn a lot from some really great directors. And when I'm producing, I could watch their stuff and say, oh, gosh. And as we very seldom as directors get to watch other directors work, it's a very solitary job. You're by yourself. It's one director. And you don't have the opportunity of having other directors to watch. Uh, you're, you're the guy. It's your movie. And when you produce, you get a chance to watch other directors and learn from them. So producing and Tommy uh, Shlami, Tommy Shlami was the, ran the West Wing, and sports night uh, with Aaron's partner and, and said I'd be their filmmaker, and he was right. Now you, you mentioned casting. You know, now since with the uh, with Corona and everything like that, I know, and I see it on Twitter a lot. People don't they hate putting themselves on tape? They'd rather be in the room as a cast. If you're going to cast something, how do you? Do you think it's easier to see someone in the room or is it easier to see them on tape? Because it's two different things. One's very spontaneous. If you screw up, you you know, I mean, how do you look at that now? I prefer to be in the room with them uh, because then I can see if they, if they take direction and I can say to them uh, if I think they're going to get it, whether uh, what I want them to think about homework wise. And sometimes that might be, you got it. Don't look at it again. Somebody auditions for me and they've got three or four lines and they're just right, then I'll say to them in the audition, please don't look at it till you show up on the day. You already know it. I don't want you working it in front of the mirror. Or if I see somebody and I can sense they're just afraid, uh, then I'll give them another shot and try to get them, you know, talk them off that ledge and see what they can really do and relax them and get them, you know, to give me a better performance in the room. I prefer to be in the room. That being said, uh, I can tell from a link if they're not right for the part. Uh, I don't need to be in the room to tell if somebody's not right for the part. Uh, and I can hone in on the top two or three. It's just a little riskier uh, not being in the room and seeing them live. Uh, it's just a little bit you know, the error, you make a few more errors on casting because you don't really get a sense, you know, you're not in the room with them. So you don't get a, a, ch a chance to see how they react to direction. Some actors are absolutely terrible at taking notes. Uh, you know, you can't that you watch them, you know, back up immediately. Their first reaction when you give them a note is I suck or uh, their first reaction. Brad Whitford says the first reaction 
to a note from a director's F you. Then it's I suck. And then what do you want? Uh, but he goes through that, you know, and I, a lot of actors are like that. You with Glenn Close, I directed Glenn a lot. If I had a note for Glenn, I couldn't go to Glenn first. Uh, to go to Roseburn or Ted Danson or John Goodman or somebody else, uh, and, and, and make them laugh and, and, and whisper to them and, make him smile, and then on the way out of the room, Glenn might look him. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'd give her a note. Uh, if you go to Glenn right away, uh, you don't want to embarrass her, and she's working every day, all day long. She would have been fine if I went to her right away, but I felt, you know, best to find another way around, you know, to, to give her a note as if it was an afterthought, you know. You didn't want the bunny burner look from Fatal Attraction. You didn't want that coming your way. No, I, I got a question. I got a question for you. You know, you've won an you've won an Emmy. You know, do you think that intimidates actors sometimes when you're directing them because you are an accomplished actor and you 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 have the chops and you've been in motion pictures? Do you think like some of these younger actors come on the set and go, "Holy shit! I'm not only dealing with a director. I'm dealing with a director who's an Emmy winner, who's been in Field of Dreams, who's had a." A career for 30 odd years i mean do you ever feel that actors are intimidated by you yeah i do normally it's because of my physique steve you know it's uh it's that that's what i see you know that they look at me and the rock and cena you know we're all kind of that that same that that's what usually they react to um yes it, it, there i have been there are times where certainly where you know, people have, have, especially, you know, on 30-something, people realize, you know, I saw Richard Dreyfus and Gene Wilder, and I thought, oh, you don't have to be John Wayne or William Holden. Uh, and people look at me and realize they don't have to be George Clooney or Brad Pitt, you know, the young kids. And they go, oh, I could be an actor and work with, work with uh, you know, the bus field. And, and they see the Nerds movies, and, you know, they, they can get a little – I think they – they aren't intimidated as much as they're excited. Uh, if you know, they get excited cause they, they've seen me and stuff. And I think they trust that I'll help them a little bit more, um, because I'm an actor and, and they'll listen to me a little bit more. It's, they're so stupid to do because they think cause I have an Emmy, I'm going to direct them well, but, uh, it works in my for you. And if they, and if they don't have any respect, I just bring the Emmy to work with me and I put it in, uh, in my chair. And, I, I, have and one, I, 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 I have one final question for you. Um, how has the industry changed? You know, you've gone from you know, somebody who's been from theater to the earlier days of TV when TV was getting big. Now everything's digital. How do you see it's changed? And do you think it's affected acting for the newer people because they know all of a sudden it's digital? You can. You can say one line, and if you screw it up, it can be all cut together. But back, you know, you had to roll film. And, and if you screwed up, people were like, oh, Jesus Christ, we have to set up again and do this whole thing. How do you think it's changed? Yeah, I, none of that. that honestly, the, the difference in film and video is not, has not affected anything. Uh, the only thing it affects with some people, and I did this on film, is we don't cut as much. Uh, you know, we're allowed to, you know, we just keep, you know, we'll say we don't worry about burning film. 
uh, and the, the processing of film. You don't worry about that on video. You know, you somebody's going to dump that card and, and um, you know, and, and, and they'll start all over again with a whole new card the next day. Uh, and it's not like having to process film. Uh, but where I think the business has shifted uh, is that, you know, we, we had, and you see it with the British actors especially, it used to be that everybody came up through the theater in one way or another, it seemed like. Everybody had a, they came with a performance, they played, even you had style on shows like Dallas or, uh, you know, Dynasty and, uh, you know, even the guys that were on the cop shows from Zimblist and the guys we grew up on, they all came from the theater mostly and radio. And, uh, you know, the American acting now, you could just take an acting class and be discovered and really not have ever had to be observed what it is to be functional to a story. Uh, and, and you don't have a theatrical playfulness. Whereas if you look at all the BBC mysteries and you look at the British actors, they're all classically trained theater actors. And there are best actors right now. It's not a mystery are coming from the European uh, areas and coming from uh, Australia and places like that. We sort of, Brando and those guys sort of, and Pacino, Broadway actors, theater actors, uh, Hall of Fame theater actors, uh, uh, sort of found a way to be really natural and real. And globally, um, you know, it's, it's not as this sort of stiff, you know, uh, voice acting. It doesn't matter anymore. And acting is sort of moved from that. Uh, and I think it was Warren Beatty said the big screen's getting smaller and the small screen's getting bigger. And in that statement really tells you that movies and television have come together. Uh, uh, you see, as you started off in one of your first questions, you're talking about people looking down on television. Now television is the only place where they could have real problems. Uh, you know, you can have, you know, you can have save the universe problems, or you can have Mike Myers horror film problems on the big screen. But if you want to have a marital problem, you can't do it in feature films anymore. You got to do it on TV. So uh, you've seen a lot of the really good actors that want to act and, you know, exhibit what life is really like uh, coming to TV. And um, I think where they can, there's a little bit of extra fun performance in a lot of these movie stars that are theater actors. And if they're British, if it's Ray Fiennes or guys like that, um, those guys are all Kate Blanchett. These are all theater actors and they're movie star theater actors. And now they're coming into TV and, um, you know, the American actor is not so much a theater actor. And, uh, I think we're getting our butts kicked a little bit, uh, with the, with the European actors. And it's a fun challenge, but I've seen that change and it's, it, uh, I'd like to see it reverse itself, but since American theater is not essential as it is in the European countries, I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to, you know, see that reverse itself. Uh, Spider-Man is British. You know, there are all these kids that none of them are, they're, they're, they're so often, you know, actors that can play style. 
uh, and we were taught style. I was taught style, but kids aren't, nobody's learning style anymore. Um, except for the, you know, where they, where they, where they do plays. So what's your future? Are you going to keep doing both? Are you going to, or what do you want to concentrate more now or more on directing or acting? Or are you just doing what you've been doing this whole time? Doing both. Well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. One of the things I love the most is I have a film. You can find it on YouTube called One Smart Fellow. And I was uh, producing a show in North Carolina. My wife was acting on the show. We had a house down there we were renting. I was over at the director of photography's house with the A camera operator. And I was complaining about uh, how difficult it was to deliver an episode of TV for three and a half million dollars. And I said, we can make a TV show in 41 minutes. We can make a 41 minute TV show or, or a movie uh, for no money. Uh, we don't need trucks. We don't need lights anymore. The cameras are, you don't need all that equipment. Why don't we just, and so uh, we made a movie. We made a 44 minute film in eight hours and it won a ton of festivals and is a really strong piece. And I like that format more than anything. It's Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm, five to seven page outline. There's no scripts for Curb Your Enthusiasm, just an outline. Nobody works off uh, a TV script. Larry David, in, in his experience and wisdom, doesn't want to push a boulder uphill anymore. Uh, so he writes an outline and shows up and has found that the actors like it. I like that style, and I really want to exploit that a lot. So, you know, we shot a couple of my things on my equipment, and I've been acquiring cameras and lenses and sound equipment. And what I'd really like to do is make my own stuff. I know how to produce. I know how to act. I know how to direct. I know how to do costumes. I know how to do, you know, I know how to, what's a good set and what's not a good set. What I'd really love to do is go to the garage band style of filmmaking. When I saw a documentary and the traveling Wilburys uh, were in George Harrison's recording studio and uh, uh, Dylan is in a booth where clearly there's just wood from Home Depot <laughs> And nails from no romance. George Harrison didn't paint it and lacquer it. and He built a little booth they could record in. And Dylan's in there recording and Roy Orbison and uh, George Harrison and Tom Petty are all outside the room. And they're talking to Dylan and they're trying to help Dylan write the song. Uh, and they're giving him notes. And that garage band ability for Guys to be able to record their own content. George could push the button. He could move the dials. They might have had one person doing that. But they were able to tell a story with themselves. We can do that now in film where we couldn't do it before. In the old days, the film was so slow that it needed a lot of light. Or you couldn't make an impression off a mirror through a bunch of emulsion and, and, and stuff and make an image of a face which was the process of filmmaking. Nowadays, uh, you're taking light away on all the shows I'm directing because the HD is so bright. It, everything looks like a soap opera because it's so clear. So now we're able to get to a point, I think the next phase is actors making their own content, just like 
these albums, these songs that we're listening to, they're not recorded at Capital Cities anymore. Uh, they're, you know, Ariana Grande is recording in her garage. People are recording at home. These songs are coming out of makeshift studios. And I think we're, the filmmaking is going to move to that. TV shows are going to start to be, you know, uh, instead of 100 people, you're going to have 14 or 15 and I would like to discover that and see what quality comes out. I still love the idea of doing big stuff, but small is good. And the podcast that's that's coming out that we have right now, the Black Widow Marvel podcast, it's just the actors. And then we give it to Daniel Brunel, who does the sound and mixes everything. And you kind of say to him, I want the conversation meets Blade Runner. And uh, you watch him go and come up with, you know, you say the of dialing in since it's a surveillance episode. Uh, I mean, uh, storyline. And he makes it happen. Uh, and the manpower is small. Uh, and I think that that's what we're going to see. We're going to see, you know, big movies are going to have big crews, but we're going to see small movies with much smaller crews and actors able to get through stuff a lot quicker. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. This was great. I'm a fan. And, uh, you know, as I said, the IMD, I always, when I have people with IMDb, I'm, I'm, I'm an IMDb junkie. Like, I've had people with, like, over 200 credits. You're like, holy crap, how do you have 200 credits? But you have, like, a solid work for years. Now, you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, I, I, I hardly ever. Uh, I'm there, uh, and I'll talk about the shows I'm on, but... Uh, I only got a couple thousand people, so I'm not real big on the Twitter. Well, people, just go go to INDB, look up Tim's work, you know, look watch his watch his performances, and then watch his directing, because you'll be like, oh my god, this guy's directed like almost every show. And uh, go to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find over 885 episodes there. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Uh, Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.